We are in Psalm 139 this week, uh, so I want you to, to follow along as we work through this today, and so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up. Um, if you need a Bible, you can check in the pew Bibles in front of you, or your iPhone, or your iPad, or uh, if you're really particular about formats, you can go real old, sc- old school and pull out a scroll. Uh, I think that'd be the coolest thing ever if one of you did that, but that's probably hard to carry around in your pocket. Uh, so anyway, if you are, uh, what we're going to find here is this is an interesting psalm. It's, it's deeply theological, and yet this psalm is, is not about mere head knowledge. It's not dry facts about God to be memorized and, uh, and to just use in that sort of way. Uh, in fact, the overarching theme here in Psalm 139 is that um, God who created absolutely everything is not distant from his people, but he has this, this intimate knowledge of, of each and every one of us. See, it, it speaks to the head and to the heart of the child of God. It's a message that really we need to hear. Uh, we need to hear this from God. And, and my hope is that by the end of, of us work, walking through this text today, I hope that you understand that God, in fact, knows that you need to hear this. Um, it's wonderfully arranged. It's, it's written, there's 24 verses you're going to see here. You might even notice a lot of your, your Bibles will break it down into these, these smaller groups because it easily breaks down into these four stanzas and, and, uh, uh, of six verses each. And in each of those, those stanzas, you'll find that the first four verses describe this theme. There's an overarching theme. And then the last two verses reflect on whatever truth has been expressed in that portion. And, and so the way we're going to work through this today is we're going to look at each, each stanza. And we're going to start with just the first six verses, first stanza. Uh, and then we're going to pray, asking God's blessing on, uh, on the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word today, uh, this afternoon. So follow along with me. Psalm 139, and we'll start with verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before me, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, to know you is an amazing thing. To be known by you is so deeply intimate it's it is too wonderful and yet it's the truth and we know that because you have revealed it in your word to us as we move through this 139th psalm this afternoon we ask that you open our minds to understand and our hearts to to feel the intimate love that you have for your people we pray this in the glorious name of jesus our savior amen So perhaps you've heard this story before. A college professor is administering a final at the end of the year for his class. And as the exam began with with well over 100 students in the room, uh, but with only two minutes left, there's really just a handful of students left. And as time began to run out, the professor tells the remaining, or as time runs out, the professor tells the remaining students to stop writing and turn in their exam. 
Everyone in the room complied except for one single student who continued to just write and write and write, uh, ignoring the professor. And this professor became very frustrated at this student. And raising his voice, he said, I, I said, stop writing. And the student did not comply, but continued to write. The professor then informed the student that he would not be permitted to turn this, this exam in uh, because he had taken five minutes more than any other students. Uh, and eventually the student got up and began to walk to the front of the, the class and uh, where the stack of exams were and the professor told him, I told you, you cannot turn this exam in. And the student smugly asked this professor, do you have any idea who I am? And the professor just was not impressed with him one bit. He said, I don't know and I don't care. The boy smiled and said, good. Lifted up the stack of papers, stuck his exam in there and closed it back down. If you don't know who I am, how is he ever going to be able to, to figure out who just stuck his test into that exam? This story is an, it's an urban myth. It most likely never ever happened, but it, it humorously shows us that there are these times in our life when we do not want to be known. Times when we want to be almost invisible in the rooms. We, we, we find this in all other areas of our life when we have secrets that we wish to keep hidden or when we find ourselves in a moment so embarrassed that we really just wish we were invisible. And, and yet, whether we like it or, or, or not, one of our deepest uh, emotional needs as humans is this need to be known, truly and intimately known. And so while there is this sense in which we are afraid to be known, there's also this deeper level, this craving for someone to know us. In fact, I've, I've noticed when adult children really struggle to have a healthy relationship with, with their own parents, their, their own mother or father, that often at the root of that is this, this sense that their, their parents don't truly know them. You know, here is someone that you would expect to, to actually know you, and when they don't, it can be deeply painful. Marriages also struggle when one or both spouses feel they are not truly known by their husband or by their wife. See, we have this, this terrifying desire to be known, to be so known, in fact, that we're absolutely laid bare before someone, and in that moment, to find that they do indeed still love us. Tim Keller, in his, his book on marriage, wrote of this human desire. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And I tell you all this because I want you to understand that this, this need to be intimately known is met most profoundly, most completely, by the very God who made you this way to begin with. So I want us to look at these first six verses here where we see that, that God is, is omniscient. Um, that's a theological term. It's made up of two Latin words, omni meaning all, and, and science actually meaning knowledge. And, and as a theological term, what it means is that God knows everything. And that means for us that God doesn't learn. Every one of us understand what it is to learn, but God doesn't learn. And he doesn't learn because to learn would imply that there was something that he didn't already know to begin with. And here the psalmist is, is, is writing about the endless knowledge of, of God here. And, and, and he's doing so not as some mere fact uh, 
to be known but as this, this deep truth that gives way to this wide-eyed wonder that we see in the psalmist, who is David. Um, in fact, right from the beginning, did you notice that, that he begins by addressing the Lord, addressing God as Lord? And again, this is in all capitals. We've seen this in every psalm we've looked at so far, um, which means this is God's personal covenantal name. He's saying, oh, Yahweh. And so it begins for David here and for us with his understanding that God has revealed himself to his people. Because apart from God revealing his name, uh, through, through what we read in the scriptures, this personal name, the psalmist would have no knowledge of even the name of who God is to cry out to. And so don't, don't fail to recognize that, that this is a glorious thing that God has made himself known in that way. And then he expresses this, what's more about God. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This word for for no in Hebrew is really a fun word to say. It's yada. Um, in fact, it found its way into Seinfeld years ago. Yada, yada, yada. And it means exactly what they meant there. Um, it's used in this wide context, but, but always with this deep sense of, of knowing something uh, or someone in a very, very real way. Um, in fact, this word is, is used in, in Genesis, the moment after Adam and Eve sinned, where the text says they knew they were naked. This is also the word in Genesis 4, just a, chapter, a little bit later, uh, when we read that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. See, it can carry this, this intimate, nothing is hidden, sense of knowledge. And here it tells us that God doesn't just know something about us. He knows absolutely everything about us. It says, God reveals in Hebrews 4.13, where we read, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. And here in our text, the psalmist then begins to list off these ways in which God knows us. And so, so listen as we walk through these, uh, these next three verses and personalize what it's saying and, um, and personalize what God reveals here about his knowledge regarding us. It says, God knows when you sit and he knows when you stand. God knows your thoughts. You understand that God really knows your thoughts, your best thoughts, your kindest thoughts, your meanest thoughts, your purest thoughts, your dirtiest thoughts. He knows the ideas in your minds and the feelings that are both loving and, and hateful going on in your mind. He knows that. In verse 3, we see that God knows where you go and he knows why you go where you go. In verse 4, we learn that he knows the, the words you say, and he knows them before you even say them, before they ever leave your mouth. And so God knows our thoughts, he knows our ways, and he knows our words. And then in verse 5, the psalmist says of God, You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. This, this hemming in, this is not a phrase we use often. It doesn't mean to cuddle. It's not a, a hug. It's this this military term. In fact, it's translated as besiege many other places in the scripture. It's like saying, God, you besiege me. You surround me. God, you prepare to conquer me. It's this sense of, of knowledge such that God does not leave you alone. And this could be frustrating. In fact, um, you'd think it would be frustrating. And yet we see the psalmist just just absolutely floored that that's the way that God relates to him. In verse 6 he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. 
To know that God knows you like he does should lead us to respond in a similar way, to just be absolutely amazed that, that he knows us and cares for us that way. To, to say something along the lines of, of, God, your knowledge that you have of me is just too wonderful. And as much as we wish to be known, we think, if we're honest, we desire to be on our own terms. So it makes sense that the, the second section is this, this desire to, to hide from God. See, the second stanza you'll see in verses 7 through 12 continues with this theme about being known by God, but now the focus is on how we cannot hide from God. We absolutely cannot escape from His presence. Uh, follow along as I read. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be, be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So he begins with these two questions that are asking the same thing. How do I get away from God? How do I not be known by God? How do I escape his presence, and, and he goes through his options, and he finds that God is absolutely at every single turn. He, he cannot climb higher than God, and he cannot go lower than God. This phrase, wings of the morning, is believed to be the, the morning light as the sun comes up and travels from the east to the west at great speeds. He's saying that even, even if he could uh, move with the morning light, he could not outpace God because God is absolutely everywhere. He then considers if he could go to the, the depths of the ocean or, or into the absolute darkness to just get away from God where at least God couldn't see him. And, and yet, even in this, he admits that the dark is not dark to God because even in the darkness, God sees just as clearly as if it were noonday. See, we simply cannot escape the presence of God. Um, remember in, in high school, uh, there came a time when our high school put up these cameras everywhere, and we were all paranoid until we, we heard that they weren't real. They were just fake cameras designed to, to scare us, and, and so we began to become a little more confident of, uh, about them being around us. And, and yet a, a few weeks later, one of these, these guys I know was, was called into the assistant principal's office, and she asked him, did you really throw an apple across the cafeteria today? And he swore up and down. I did, I did not. You know I wouldn't do that. That might hit somebody. That would hurt them. Uh, you know I wouldn't do that. And, and she turns around and she opens this cabinet and, and plays a video of him throwing an apple across the cafeteria um, that hits someone. And his response was, oh yeah, now I remember. Uh, it didn't go well for them. And that was the moment that we realized those cameras were absolutely real and they'd seen everything we didn't think they were seeing. And, 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 I, and I mention that because I think it can be a terrifying thing to think that, that God knows every sinful thought that you've ever had. It's this kind of sense of, of violation almost. It's just terrifying. And, and yet it should also be an absolute comfort to us to, to know that God is always around when we are afraid or, or lonely, to know that, that God is there, present in our life, even in those most terrible, terrifying moments of our life. And the third stanza, verses 13 to 18, helps us to understand that it, it really should be no surprise to us that God knows us so well because, in fact, God has made us. Uh, read along silently as I read verses 13 through 16 uh, out loud. It says, For you formed me in my inward parts. 
You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So we learn here that we are artesian or artisan or however you want to pronounce that word. We were made with the skillful hands uh, of God. And we learn that God didn't just make Adam and Eve and set everything in motion, but God is acti was actively involved in making each and every one of us. Um, and the amazing thing, each and every one of us so distinctly different. Uh, this summer I made this, this reading chart for our children and, and every time they finish a, a section, there's these circles on the chart, and, and they just draw a smiley face, and they can make a human's face of any, anything they want uh, just to make a person's face. There's, there's 50 of them on, on the page. That's it. And, and yet the other night, one of our children asked me, do I have to make them all different? Um, and I think it's because it's, it's hard to think of that many variations on a face. And, and, and yet, understand this. Right now on, on planet Earth, just right now, alive at this moment, there are about 7 billion people whom God has made and made them so uniquely different. Not just physically, but in their personalities as well. I mean, think about how amazing it is that, that God has created so many unique bodies and, and, and souls throughout time, even beyond or before this time period. But also, think about your own life. Uh, you know, a, a human from from the point of conception, that the moment that God began to divide those cells, he was there forming you. And now, David wasn't writing about abortion here. He just, he wasn't. It wasn't even on his, his map or radar of any sense. But we, we can't read this without acknowledging this, that, that the child in the womb is, is not a mere mass of flesh, but a body and a soul and an actual human still hidden in the darkness of his mother's womb being formed by God. So just for a moment, forget political agendas. Forget just for a moment if abortion is right-wing or left-wing or, or where it stands on, on that sort of a spectrum. And, and for the simple, reason, um, the simple reason that Christians ought to defend the rights of the unborn child is that even in the womb, this is a precious human life. This is the people group who has no voice and cannot defend themselves. And how we defend these people absolutely must, be, it must reflect on who our God is. It must reflect on his goodness and not some misguided hatred for others. But, but where we stand on this issue should absolutely never be a mystery. Now again, I want you to, to feel this, this personally. Um, to understand that God has, has intimately created you. I don't know that we think about that much. There's this distance that just feels like we were born at. But, but that God created you. He created the shape of your nose. That every freckle on your skin, that's, that's God's design. Um, he determined how tall you're going to grow. He, uh, he determined the way you're going to bite your lip when you're thinking about something really hard. He, he determined the color of your hair and your eyes. And, and God created you that way on purpose. And this we also learn that our days have been numbered. We don't know the answer to, to that mystery, how many numbers, uh, how many days that we actually have. And, and yet each day should be enjoyed as a gift from God. 
And the last two stanzas in this section reflect on, on the, the thoughts of God. He writes in verses 17 and 18, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. See, God's thoughts are so vast that he's saying they're like the sand. This, this phrase sand, this is a term they use like we use the word infinity. It's just so much that we can't even begin to count it. And, and this fourth stanza then begins with, with four verses that are typically skipped when the psalm is preached. <clears throat> I know, I tried to find stuff on it. Um, it's one of those texts, though, that's in Scripture, and it, it makes us really want to sign up to be God's public relations director, you know, so we can advise him, God, you don't want to put this in the Bible. Um, you know, God, I just, I don't think this is going to give people the image of you that we really want you to have, and, and it kind of brings that out in us, I think, as Christians, when we want to protect the image of God, and, and, and we need to know this, God does not need a public, uh, a public relations director. And this is in the scripture, and he puts it in here to reveal something about himself. Uh, and it might make us uncomfortable, and yet here it is. And so listen or follow along. Verses 19 through 22, it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. See, this is one of a handful of psalms in the scripture that are called imprecatory psalms. And what that means is that it's psalms that are these prayers expressing a hatred for the enemies of God and asking often for the destruction of these enemies, asking God to call down curses upon them. And in this particular situation, David is distancing himself from the enemies of God. That's what's going on here. And the flip side of that is David's aligning himself with God. Um, oh God, your enemies are my enemies. That's kind of the statement he's trying to make here. And, and, and as you read this, hopefully your, your thoughts begin to think, you know, of, of the wider understanding of Scripture. And you might have even thought of, of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, uh, where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And it raises this, this question, I think, for us uh, from this text. How are we to relate to the enemies of God? Um, take ISIS, for example. We hear about them in the news constantly. Uh, here's a group that actively and intentionally is seeking out Christians and, and killing them uh, because they're Christians. Um, and, and so you ask yourself, is it right for us to, to pray for their salvation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what they need, what they desperately need is, is faith in the only Savior of sinners, who is Jesus Christ. The other part of that question, is it right to pray for the destruction? Absolutely. We desire that God protect the church in the Middle East from the evil intentions of ISIS. But let us pray in that order. Let us understand what's happening here. Let us pray for their salvation, salvation first and for the destruction if it must come to that. Because really, we've got to remember that at one point, each of us were also enemies of God. Each of us were rightly deserving of that destruction. Even in Romans 5.10 tells us, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. 
And from that, we learn that at one point we were enemies deserving of the destruction of God. And so, yes, pray for the salvation of God's enemies and, and pray also for God to bring down judgment on his enemies who are doing great evils in the world, if that need be. Um, but what we should learn from this text also is that as, as blood-bought children of God, uh, we should always have our, our loyalties aligned with God. Um, that can be difficult at times, but to understand that, God, we are on your side. Uh, the last two verses are, are this confident prayer of the psalmist. He, he has this need, uh, you know, the psalmist, um, about his loyalty to God. In verse 23 and 24 read, uh, again, kind of going back to the very first verse we read, but it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, people generally hate to be searched. Just go to the airport. If you've ever flown on a plane, you understand this. One of the things you can't stand is when they begin to search your luggage, search all over your body, checking your shoes for bombs. Um, even in that moment, there's this terrifying idea of what am I carrying I'm not supposed to be carrying um, because you just hate being searched out. It's an absolutely terrifying thing. And, and that's just at the airport. Can you imagine if Travis came over to your house this week because he's nosy that way and, and he just began to dig through all your stuff? Um, looking through your drawers and your cabinets, um, getting on your computer and reading your emails and your texts and everything else of that nature. Um, if he began to do that, one, you'd have him arrested, but, but would you be afraid of what he might find? Um, I mean, what we're seeing here is this, this prayer for God to search him, to know his heart. And I mean, how would you like God to be able to search your heart? And he can at this very moment. What, what will he find there? See, when David here is asking God to, to search his heart, he, he's not asking because he's arrogantly thinking, God, I am so perfect, you won't find anything wrong. He, he's asking because he wants to be made aware of any grievous way in him. Because only when we're aware of our sin are we able to repent of that sin and begin to obey in that area. And so he's asking God to bring that to light. And, and that's why he ends with this plea that God would lead him in, in the way everlasting. Uh, you and I, we might pray it like this. God, search my heart, search my thoughts, and show me where my sin is so that I might turn from it and follow you in a way that brings joy to my life and glory to your name. So we, we come to the end of this psalm, and you know, what do we do with it? You know, what are some takeaways here? I think, first of all, all that you are has been absolutely laid bare before the God who has created you. You might think you're hiding things, but you're not. You can't. You are known. The God of the universe actually knows you. And I, and I mention that just because, do you really understand that? Can you feel that? that? That God is real and that nothing is hidden from him. He knows all the things that have made us who we are. He knows the damage others have caused by their words and their deeds. He knows the words we have said and the things that we have done that have, that have caused harm to ourselves and harm to others. He knows our rebellion against his authority in our life. He, he knows our lack of trust in him and the anxiety that it causes us. You see, God knows your darkest moments, your most intimate thoughts, your sexual struggles, your deepest fears, your most prideful feelings. He knows the prejudice that you harbor in your heart the most shameful actions you've ever committed, even if no other human knows about this. 
I think sometimes we are so afraid that someone might find out our darkest, dirtiest secrets, and yet the only one who can cast us into hell or save us from our sin already knows them. He was there in that moment. He was there in your thoughts, even knowing what you were thinking or feeling. And and so stop hiding. Stop thinking you're hiding from God. And, And if you're faith is in Christ, then not only does God know the depth of your sin, but in compassion and in love, He laid down His own life to pay for that sin. Do you hear that, Christian? God knows your darkest secrets, and He loves you no less than if He had already... uh, He loves you no less than if He didn't already know you at your absolute core. So no matter what you think of God, I, I want you to hear this. Jesus knows everything, and in, in his, this life, Jesus doesn't say to go from me. In fact, he says the exact opposite. He says, turn from your sin and come to me. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to close with a a portion of a poem that was written by by Diedrich Bonhoeffer many years ago. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor uh, in Germany, and he was arrested by the Nazis during World War II. And and, and so many looked at him and saw, here is a rock-solid, strong, strong believer, a fearless leader for the people. And and yet by his own confession, he he said, you know, um, that he was afraid, that he was fearful, that he was worn out, that he felt weak. And, and, and through all these, these internal struggles that he faced, he, he sought to follow Christ, and he found this comfort in the knowledge that God had truly known him and, and that he eternally belongs to God. And, and so while sitting in prison, he, he reads Psalm 139, and he has this, this, poem, uh, this poem that he writes, and I want to end with just the last portion of that. He says, Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and another tomorrow? Am I both at once, in front of others a hypocrite, and to myself contemptible, fretting, weakling? Or is something still in me like a battered army, running in disorder from a victory already achieved? Who am I? These lonely questions mock me. Whoever I am, you know me. I am yours, O God. Let's pray. Lord, you know everything. You've made everything. You have made each of us unique physically and unique in our personalities. That we are truly known by you is, as the psalmist says, too wonderful for us. So we thank you, Lord, for for knitting us together in our mother's womb. God, give us passion for your ways that we might pray with the same confidence as we see in this passage, asking God to search us out, search us, and, and know our hearts. Lord, we are prone to wander. Yet our prayer today is that you would lead us in your everlasting way. May we find comfort in the vulnerable truth that we are laid bare in your presence, and that we are truly known and yet loved by you. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen.